Today's scripture reading is from Esther chapter 2, verses 5 to 23. This can be found in your Red Pew Bibles on page 489. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoashan, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadasha, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken into the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments and prescribed 12 beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oils of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning returned to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, for she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave her a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. 
And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals to be in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that was a, that was a big reading, and it uh, introduces us to um, the way in which we're going to look at the Book of Esther this Advent season. But if you know the Book of Esther, you know it's uh, it's quite a long story, and so to to pretend to preach through the Book of Esther in four weeks um, that's not really happening. But nevertheless. We want to spend some time in Esther um, this Advent season because uh, we believe that there's something about how we read Esther equips us and helps us for how we read our own lives and indeed how we read what's going on in the church and what's going on in the world. One of the tragedies of the Advent season is the way that we participate, and sometimes so willingly, in the cultural expression of preparation. I think, I think many of you probably are like me, or are um, shocked with sort of the onslaught of commercialization surrounding this, uh, this weekend of, uh, supposedly this weekend of Thanksgiving. And the onslaught of commercialization uh, expressed in Black Friday and uh, this uh, Thanksgiving weekend, I, 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 um, I risk the prediction that it, um, it's going to be called Black Friday weekend in uh, the years to come amongst cultures in the future and that, that certain other aspects of that weekend um, are going to be dropped. And as Canadians, sort of shame on us in a way for adopting this uh, kind of language, but, but we do have this ongoing challenge of other themes and other thoughts and other realities kind of impinging on us just at the very time when our Christian faith invites us to go deeper in the story of Jesus. And so there's this tension, it seems, between being preoccupied by the dominant culture and our participation in that culture and the tension between that and our invitation to become preoccupied with the coming of Jesus, with the life of Jesus, with the death of Jesus, with the resurrection of Jesus, with the ascension of Jesus, with the coming again of Jesus. This, of course, doesn't start, this Advent idea doesn't start um, in the Gospels even. It doesn't start necessarily um, in the story of Esther. But in many ways, something that we often don't get, it starts with a pastor named the Apostle Paul, who was very, very concerned for his people that they not only look expectantly to the coming of Jesus again, the return of Jesus, but that they prepare themselves, that they understand 
that preparing themselves for the coming of Jesus was very important, even though there were all kinds of other distractions. And he writes these words in his letter to the church at Thessalonica. He says, For you know quite well that the day of the Lord, the Lord's return, will come unexpectedly. So we know as God's people that Jesus is coming again. But Paul said it's going to come unexpectedly. It's going to be a challenge to really sort of know exactly when it's going to take place. Paul goes on and says that that just when everything's peaceful, something traumatic is going to happen, just like pregnant women giving birth. And he says there's no escape from this. It's happening. It's going to happen. And then his pastoral advice, he says... But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. You won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For all you are all children of the light in the day, and we don't belong to the darkness of the light. And this is what he says. This is, this is the invitation to Advent. So be on your guard. Don't fall asleep like others. Stay alert. Be clear-headed. I don't know if there's any cultural expression known to man than the next six weeks that encourage us to be sleepy, not attentive, overbooked, not focused, ill-prepared, completely distracted, and exhausted, unless I'm missing something. It's not so much about us and them. It's really about us and us, because we live in that world as well. We participate in that world. It's not so much about a judgmentalism from the pulpit as it's an invitation to reflect a little bit more deeply. And there's an invitation to develop skills of staying alert to develop skills of keeping awake, for to develop skills of discerning the times. Then the story of Advent, the celebration of Advent, moves from Paul's pastoral encouragement and the stress and the challenge and the reality that we all face. And, and it's not like you can keep Advent for one year and just sort of get it all together. It, it just does seem that we need a few opportunities to practice this kind of staying awake, this kind of alertness, this kind of being ready, this kind of discerning the times, this time of having your eyes wide open to what's taking place in the world. But let me move you to the Gospels in Luke's Gospel. At the time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, many of you have heard those, that text read over and over again, whether it's Christmas Eve or whether it's during the Advent season or whether it's in the devotions that you're, um, that you're reading. And, and those words just sort of wash over us because we have become so familiar with them. That description by Luke as a disciple of Jesus is outrageous. 
That description of Luke in his context should have filled his readers with fury. He's writing out of Israel. He's writing out of Palestine. And yet a decree from Caesar Augustus goes out that everybody is going to be taxed. And everybody, no matter where they're living and where they're working, they've got to go back to their hometown in order to register for this census. The people of Israel are used to God and God's person being on the throne. And Luke continues to write when he describes Joseph. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he writes. And if that doesn't fill you more with fury and frustration, that here is Caesar Augustus in Rome telling everybody under his kingdom, this is what you've got to do. This is where you've got to go. And we're reminded right in the very story of King David, of God's person, a man after God's own heart. The real true king of Israel, who obviously is not calling the shots anymore. Someone else is calling the shots. Someone else is calling the shots for how we spend Advent and how we spend Christmas. Someone else is calling the shots for what people do with their time and that they have to travel. And Joseph and his family are affected by this profoundly. The backdrop of this story is that Israel was sinking into hopelessness. They're so frustrated by being under the thumb of a foreign ruler. And they tried all different kinds of ways of kind of getting more serious about the scriptures and more serious about the law. And they also, a group of them, became more serious about starting a revolution in order to fight Rome militarily, which eventually turned out to be another disaster. And the backdrop of all of these beautiful Christmas texts, these beautiful promises of Isaiah that we read over and over again that describe the Messiah, this chosen one of God who's going to come and make everything right, is that all you have to do is look around at the world today. And I don't know why it is, but particularly on this year to look at the Middle East, the original context for these texts, Esther in Persia, Luke writing in Israel, and the absolute mess and, and, and no promise of solution, it seems. Cities being bombed, people, particularly children, innocent children, being murdered in the midst of their schools and hospitals and their celebrations. And all of a sudden, the sentiment of our church celebration crashes into the reality of our political state. And, and we're not unaffected by that. We have 
a refugee family that we have been wanting to come to be with us for such a long time now. And they've been caught up in bureaucracy. They've been caught up in money. They've been caught up in all kinds of confusion. And as much as the United Nations and other people are working for their well-being, somehow it's just not happening the way that we want it to happen. And I'm, I'm seeing Heather nod her head. Heather Bryce has been steering our refugee group and in, in, in helping Hanin come to us. And and it's tiring, frustrating, and sometimes if I get one more email that says actually Hanin's not coming when we wanted her to come, just one more email, I'm just going to pull what little hair I have out of my head. And the explanations for the delay that just don't seem to make much sense. And that's the tragedy of the distractedness of this Advent season, is that it sort of makes us for a period of time forget not only the promise of God, but the real hopelessness of our present situation. And for God's people who are meant to stay at work, who are meant not to be living in the dark, but living in the light, to be able to see what's really happening in the world and to understand what's going on in the coming of God's kingdom, some kind of tension, some kind of competition for realities. Many years ago, a young investment banker in our congregation, my congregation, when I was a young pastor, came to me and he said, Paul, he said, you know, you know you're a good guy, I like your preaching, you're young, but I just wonder... Could you focus your preaching a little bit more on what I experience every day? So I said to him, his name was Paul as well, and he remains a very close friend of mine, although now living in New York City. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you know, I, I work on Bay Street. I work in the towers on Bay Street. He said, it's kind of like this. He said, when I come to church, all I hear is God, God, God. But every day of my life, every meeting, every strategy, every plan, I said, I, I live, and he gave me this line, so I'll never forget. He said, I live every minute of my life in a world where God is rarely mentioned. And he said, somehow, can you help me to knit those two things together? And so... With some prayer and reflection, I was led to the story of Esther. Now, this is a long, long time ago. That doesn't really connect with our present choice to do, to do Esther. That's, this is, I'm talking 25 years ago. I'm, I'm old now for all of you seniors. I'm with you. Not quite, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there quickly. The story of Esther is uniquely written for a people who live their lives in a world where God is rarely mentioned. Those of you who know the story, know it well, will remember that the book of Esther is the only book in all of Scripture where God's name is not identified. You can look in the grammar, you can spread the lines out, you can do whatever you want. God's name is absent from the story of Esther. And every other book in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, eventually God becomes the main character of the narrative. Eventually God becomes the main person in the story. 
God becomes the subject and the object, the beginning and the middle and the end, the goal and the purpose, as well as the power. And yet in this story of Esther, this description of Esther and Mordecai in, curiously enough, in Persia, in Iran, this story where God's name is absent. And if you look at the story of Esther and you read it carefully, one of the things that you start to realize is that this story seems to be written so far off the map of what God is doing in the world. By way of introduction for Phil and for Nick, who are going to follow me in this series during Advent, we get this sense of these Jewish people who themselves are in a bit of an identity crisis. Esther keeps her identity as a Jew secret. And her involvement is not as a priestess. She's not pictured as necessarily at the beginning a woman of prayer. She's pictured as a young woman who is profoundly immersed in the culture of Persia. She's in the king's harem. She's participating maybe for her own survival, but she's participating nevertheless deeply and profoundly in the culture. And I hope there's a connection for you here as you're listening and as you're thinking, as you're praying, because we too live in this world where God is rarely mentioned. And many of us live in this culture that at sometimes makes us feel like strangers because we are God's people. Mordecai is not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a, a teacher of the scriptures. He's not pictured as a person who is completely in touch with what God is doing. Mordecai, it seems, is no Jeremiah. He is no Isaiah. He is no Amos. It looks like he's a minor bureaucrat in the kingdom of Persia. There's very little following on this in the book of Esther that makes these people, other than their names, that makes these people look overly religious. They seem to be taken up and caught up in the activity and the action and the history of the empire. They're immersed in the empire. And when Christmas means for us commercialization, we too are immersed in the empire. Identity crisis, lack of Jewish specific religiousness, God's name not mentioned, and also the backdrop and the overarching story of the book of Esther is the looming threat of extermination of the Jews. As one writer has said, this is the Holocaust that was supposed to happen before the Holocaust happened. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there is this threat that the Jews are wiped off the map, exterminated. And so another step in the direction of hopelessness. And so how do you approach the book of Esther? What in the world are you supposed to do with it? We had the wonderful opportunity of having Marian Taylor, professor of Old Testament for many years at Wycliffe College, share with us 
for our formation day. And those 25 or 30 people who were in her class, I'm sure, are going to be listening to us pastors at Knox like hawks, seeing that we get it right in how we cover this Advent series. But one of the things that becomes clear is that this book that doesn't mention God, that frustrates us. By the way, you know that there have been several translations over time where religious leaders and scholars have actually written God's name into the story of Esther because of how frustrated they are that somehow God, there must be a mistake. People like Martin Luther, the great German Protestant reformer, didn't think that Esther should be part of the Bible because it seems so strange and so far away because it didn't identify God as the obvious main character of the story. And yet it's in our scriptures, it's in our canon, and so there's an invitation to read it, and to read it we must, and to read it for the purpose of somehow asking what in the world is God doing in this story? And so there's a connection between the literary character of Esther and the life reality that we live. They come together because we live in a world where God is rarely mentioned. With any kind of seriousness, with any kind of powerful effect, maybe except for the powerful effect of evil. But if you slow down in the story, if you take time to reflect deeply on the scripture as Esther, there's tremendous promise. There's a tremendous set of skills. There's a, a tremendous set of reading capacity that's available to you which I want to argue with you in the sermon this morning, translates into your capacity to read the presence of God in real life over against hopelessness. Now, in this humble context, I realize that that is quite a statement. But when you start to read the book of Esther, certain things start to pop up. There's sort of these inklings, these glimmers, these kind, that, you know, the way that you come into a novel or the way that you begin to watch a movie, you, you, you don't know where it's going, but you've been trained by your teachers and by the practice of careful, thoughtful reading. You've been trained to start to just make notes to yourself as the story unwinds. You don't, you don't really, you're not going to run to the end, you're not going to run to the epilogue, but you're gathering as a thoughtful reader, you're gathering up evidence that hopefully is going to make sense as the story drives towards the end. And so too in the book of Esther. It says in the passage that we um, that was read for us by, by Rachel that there was a Jew in the citadel or in the politics of Persia. Now, one of the things that our theological minds know is that when the Jews are around, God is not very far away. Because we've been trained from Genesis to the Minor Prophets to expect when the Jews are around and when the Jewish people particularly are in trouble, that God is not very, very far away. And so we're not lost in the abyss of Persia because we know that there is a Jewish man named Mordecai in the middle of the empire. And so that could be a hint to us, huh, 
I wonder where the hand of God is in this story. Second of all, there's these series of it just so happened in this story. In our text this morning, after it says in verse 21, one day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate. Well, it just so happened that he was on duty at the king's gate. Two of the king's eunuchs who were guards at the door of the king's quarters became angry with the king and plotted to assassinate. It just so happens that this Jewish man, Mordecai, was on duty that day when the plot to assassinate the king was communicated. It just so happened that he was listening in. You can see in that story some of the great plotting of writers in our tradition. Mordecai heard about the plot. It just so happened that his cousin or niece, if you like, Esther, was very connected to the king by this time. And it just so happened that he was able to communicate that plot, even though it was forgot about, including by the king for a long, long time. It just so happened. Once upon a time, Mordecai was at work and he heard something that was going to be very, very useful down the road. And he let somebody who was connected in a high place. And there you go, Esther, the most beautiful of all of the harem, who gains the attention of the king, a young Jewish woman whose identity has been kept secret by herself. So no one knows who she is, but somehow there's a young Jewish woman right at the center of the politics of Persia. And you begin to think to yourself, what in the world is God up to? When is God going to show his hand in his face, in his heart? Throughout the story, there are a series of very unlikely reversals. As Marion Taylor made clear to us, when things turn in the opposite direction, when they look like they're going this way and they do a U-turn head in the other direction throughout all of Scripture, that is a sure hint that God is doing something. When the Berlin Wall comes down, when the end of apartheid in South Africa, when reconciliation takes place after the genocide in Rwanda, some sign and signal that the kingdom of God is breaking in to the regular politics of our day, the politics where God is rarely, if ever, mentioned. Other than the name, in the name of nationalism, in the name of militarism, in the name of hatred and persecution. And then there's the odd dream or two. It reminds us of Luke and Matthew and their description of the coming of Jesus and his family and God breaking in to life through angels and through dreams in order to communicate the coming of the Messiah. Not really that well understood by the people who are receiving them, but dreams and angels nevertheless. There's even in this book that's so criticized of being not religious at all, being a kind of a completely secular story, there's this activity by Esther and by Mordecai where they commit themselves to fast. Okay, so they don't fast and pray, which is the model in the rest of Scripture, but they do fast for a purpose. 
They are looking for something. They are asking for something. They are depending on someone. Now, to read these things too quickly into the book of Esther doesn't do justice to the story and to humbling ourselves to the scripture, and it doesn't do justice to humbling ourselves to the reality of life where it is not easy to detect the hand of God. It's not easy sometimes to connect, the breaking, to, to connect with the breaking in of God's kingdom. That takes a more patient prayer. That takes a more patient kind of reading, it seems. In the story of the coming of Jesus, it's later in the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph take their baby to the temple for him to be dedicated to the Lord. And they meet two very old people, Anna and Simeon, who were told have been waiting for a really, really long time for the Messiah. And they've been kind of promised that they would be given life until the Messiah comes. Now, here's my question. When that poor couple, Mary and Joseph, and they were poor, even though Joseph was in the line of David, it wasn't really helping him financially, if you read the story carefully. They come to the temple, and Anna and Simeon realize that the baby is special. But why? How? One, one blue eye, one brown eye? Certain height or weight? Mary and Joseph have a certificate of baptism. Like, how in the world do these people know? They probably know because they have been waiting and praying and seeking God. And when they find out that the baby is associated with Bethlehem, their minds go back to the prophet Micah who talks about Bethlehem. And when they realize that Joseph is in the line of David... And when they find out from Mary's own witness that she actually had the baby without having sex, all of a sudden their biblical, spiritual hearts come together to help them to realize that God is doing something that he hasn't been doing for years before, but he's doing it now. He's doing it in their temple. He's doing it through this most unlikely couple. Faith, we're told, in the writer of Hebrews, who takes a good stab at it, is the evidence of things not seen. And that really is the correct reading of the story of Esther. Evidence of God working behind the scenes evidence of God working his sovereign grace, working his purpose, working his plan, even though it doesn't jump off the page as being so clear and so obvious to us. I want to suggest to you that this kind of reading, this kind of discernment, this kind of careful, slow prayer and reflectiveness is what it takes for us as God's people 
to see the kingdom of God breaking in in our day and in our time. In the midst of hopelessness, one of the gifts that we have, one of the practices, and that's what we're discussing in this Advent series, one of the practices that we have available to us is a careful, discerning reading of the scripture and of the times, exercised through the gift of faith to help us to see things where there isn't really much evidence. And so the questions of Advent come washing over us. The serious questions of Advent and faith Where is God working in the world today? Where is God working behind the scenes? We could argue a lot between us if we had an open mic on this, where I'm sure some of you would just want to say that God is not really very active these days. A second question, Advent question, is where is God leading his people? What is the purpose of the church, the body of Christ? Not not only Knox Presbyterian Church here in the city of Toronto, but the church universal, the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints around the world and across Christian traditions. What's the purpose of our lives and those people's lives? How obvious is it that God is directing us And finally, what is God saying to you? Where have you heard the voice of God and the word of God speak to you in recent times? Even if you can't answer those questions easily, and maybe especially because you can't answer those questions easily, it places you humbly in the Advent story. It places you humbly in Esther's story because you have the opportunity to read the world and to read the church and to read your hearts according to the faithful movement of God. Advent is certainly not a time for easy answers. It is a time for raising questions as much as it is to respond to those questions. But Advent is a kind of a posture. It's a kind of an approach. It's a kind of a slowing down. It's a kind of a patience. It's a kind of a waiting. In your bulletin at the top of the order of service, Henry Nowen writes to these two lines, waiting patiently is not like waiting for the bus to come for the rain to stop or the sun to rise. It's an act of waiting in which we live the present moment in the full order to find where the signs of the one we are waiting for. That's the invitation. To wait patiently, but to read actively through the eyes of faith for the one who is promised 
that he will come again. Now one continues to write, waiting patiently always means paying attention. Just like the attentiveness you give to a story, a mysterious story like the book of Esther. It always means paying attention to what is happening right before your eyes and seeing there the first rays of God's glorious coming. May we, the communion of saints at Knox Presbyterian Church, become a people this season who become better trained, more open, better qualified to see the first rays of evidence that God is in his creation and that his son is coming again in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.